morning. I'm going to try to do two chapters. It's a miracle. And get you out here early, as a matter of fact. That's a real miracle, isn't it? We're going to look at the uh, final five plagues we began last week, and we're going to look at the final five plagues this morning before we get to the tenth plague. And uh, among other things, these plagues clearly, clearly teach that there is only one person who is in control of everything, all of creation. Who would that be? God. Absolutely in control of everything. And so when you're thinking things are out of control, when things seem chaotic in your life, and they may in fact be chaotic in your life, guess who has them under complete control? And you can exhale. You can rest. You can trust Him. God is absolutely, awesomely almighty. And as we read these chapters and we read these episodes... They're not just stories from folklore. This is actual history. Uh, if, you, if you read secular history and you read about the, uh, the dynasties of Egypt at the, uh, at the conclusion of the Red Sea event in chapter 14 when the Egyptian army is wiped out and the, is, the Israelites have left the land, the whole nation of Egypt collapses and it disappears off the scene of history in terms of a world power. It's absolutely amazing. There's no more references to it. God has judged them. And God will judge his enemies very clearly. Our confidence is in him. And among other things, these passages underscore that for us. And so we know that God rules over all of creation. And these nine plagues against Egypt represent that reality. They are not just a display simply of God flexing his muscles. They go far beyond that. They are, as we have been seeing, the unleashing of God's creative forces, his creative power and might against the enemies of his people and hence against his own enemies. If you are an enemy of God's people, you are automatically an enemy of God. You do not want to be an enemy of God. I am, for one, glad that God's guns of judgment are no longer trained on me. Aren't you? Now, as he does this, as he brings judgment through all these different plagues and using all these aspects of creation, evidencing that he has control over every aspect of creation, and he can use it for his, as he pleases... We could assume and we could imagine that he could use any variety of means to bring Egypt to his knees. God is very creative, isn't he? Very inventive, very ingenious about how he wants to bring chastisement or judgment. He could certainly bring just an angel dressed in armor and girded with a flaming sword, couldn't he? That would all be all it would take. He could just speak and blow Egypt away evaporate them. He could bring a foreign army to sweep across the land of Egypt, as he's done in the Old Testament in a number of cases, and to defeat and plunder Egypt. But in these particular cases, these were not the tactics as he chose. He chose rather to fight with weapons that no one but he has at his disposable. 
and weapons that only he can command. After all, what defense is there against the forces of nature and creation? Try to stop an earthquake. Try to stop the hail. Try to stop the the hurricanes. I remember one time, and I was a brand new Christian, that I was on a ski lift up in Mammoth, and the wind started to blow, and anybody that skied Mammoth, you know it gets really, really windy up there, and they have to close the lifts, and I didn't want, I wanted to ski, I didn't want the lifts to be closed, and so the wind started to blow, and the chair started to sway, and so I was a brand new Christian, I'd been reading the Gospels, and Jesus told the wind to stop. (laughs) I had nothing to lose. So I hollered out, in the name of Jesus, stop, wind! I was new. <laughs> Didn't work. I mean, who, who, can, who can stand against the forces of nature? God uses the forces of nature. Creation is at his command. And in this case, he uses creation to deliver his people and to destroy his enemies. And in a very real sense, the plagues... When you look at them, when you think about them, they are a reversal of creation. By that, I mean the the animals harm now rather than serve mankind. Light ceases and darkness takes over. It's just the opposite of what creation was all about. The waters become a source of death rather than life. The climax of Genesis chapter 1, you recall, is the creation of the humans in verses 26 through 28. On the last day of creation, God creates mankind. He creates human beings. The climax of the plagues is the destruction of human beings with the last plague. So you see this incredible reversal of creation. And the plagues do not run rampant. Because they do cease, and they cease exactly when God says that they'll cease. And each cessation is another display of God's power. He brings them, and he removes them. He brings them, and he removes them. And every time he removes the plague, every time a plague ceases, he again restores order to chaos as he did in the beginning. The waters are restored. Those pesky pesky insects and the animals retreat. Each plague is a reminder of the supreme power of God who holds chaos at bay. He holds chaos at bay. But if he chooses, he will bring chaos in order to plague his enemies and in order to save his people. We see that played out in another place in the New Testament on that hill where Jesus was crucified. We saw darkness come over the land. We saw the the earth shake. We see that the rocks split. Creation, God shakes up creation. Chaos is breaking loose again. And it's evidenced through all of nature. And it's creation that witnessed God pour out his wrath on the one who became his enemy. That he might bring his people out of bondage. Who had become his enemy? Jesus. 
He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about this. All of a sudden, Jesus Christ, this man who went about doing good, became God's enemy. And God poured out his wrath on him. And that wrath was displayed in all of creation. That those chosen by God might be set free. You and I. Awesome. See this whole event back in Egypt, all these plagues culminating in the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn and the Israelites being set free, going through the Red Sea. It's all a picture of what God would ultimately do at Calvary in bringing about the salvation of many. Well, let's look at these plagues. Let's start back in chapter 9, look at the fifth plague, pick it up from last time. These are awesome displays of his power. They evidence his sovereignty. The Israelites would need to remember this, and he'll tell them that this is one of the reasons why he does what he does, because these are to be rehearsed again and again and again to every generation. Because they would need to remember that their God is who he is and that he is powerful, more powerful than any of their enemies, that they would remain loyal to him. Chapter 9, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horse. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place, aren't I? No, I'm in the right place, yeah. See, I've done this twice already. The Lord will bring, make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land, and the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Now we've been witnessing how Egypt and the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh himself have all been under attack by Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Having just wreaked havoc on Egypt, the waters of the Nile have been turned to blood. The frogs have come up out of the Nile and they've inundated the land. And no sooner had the frogs died than the gnats came. The dust of the ground turned into gnats. And then the flies came. Now Moses returns to Pharaoh to proclaim that now familiar refrain. This is what the Lord says. The God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may worship me. Two rival gods, Yahweh and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, views himself and all the Egyptians view him as to be a god in Egypt. So now we have these rival gods they continue to clash. The only hope now is that that last plague, the plague of flies, will have beaten some sense into Pharaoh, and it obviously does not. You recall in the plague of gnats that it was by the finger of God. But now, we're told in verse 3 of chapter 9, 
the force of his hand, no longer his finger, now the force of his hand is about to come upon the Egyptians. You see the increasing intensity reflected just in the languages used, the increasing intensity now of these plagues and the devastation they'll bring. The hand of God throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament is always associated with the mighty acts of judgment. And this is the first plague in which that term is used. And it concerns the first plague that directly causes death. So this plague is the first plague that actually now is going to cause death. And it's the first plague directed against created things, whereas before uh, the plagues used created things. So now the plague is going to be against the created order. It will also serve as a sign of worse things to come. A pattern of death that will culminate in the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, and also the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. So there's lots going on here. There's a transition. There's an increasing intensity of judgment. There's a pointing to what eventually will happen. Things are getting worse. This plague on the livestock would not only be a tremendous economic blow to the Egyptian economy and to the Egyptian people, but also it's an attack again on the Egyptian pantheon of gods. Cattle were considered sacred, represented by the bull, god by the name of Apis, A-P-I-S. Another goddess, the mother and sky goddess, Hathor, was depicted as a cow. And so you see again this attack on the Egyptian gods that the Egyptians revered and depended upon. God is saying, I am greater than they. Verse 7 tells us that Pharaoh sent his men to investigate all that had happened and in fact to see whether or not the, the uh, flocks, the animals that belonged to the Israelites had died or not. And he went and he saw, just as Moses had said, that the flocks of the Israelites were not even touched by this plague. There's a play on the word sent. He sent his men, whereas he should have sent whom? The Israelites out of the land to safety, shouldn't he? So he sent his men to investigate. He could easily see that the Lord had power over all the animal realm. The animals and the lives of the Egyptian people were not under the control of their gods, the gods that he and his people had worshipped, they were under the control of the God of the Israelites. Would Pharaoh give in? Would he give up at this point? No. He's not even weakening. He will not give up. And that would open the door for the sixth plague, the plague of boils. Again, things are getting worse. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. Doesn't that sound delightful? <laughs> festering boils. It's like cancerous tumors breaking out, weeping. It's not pleasant. So they took soot from the, so he, they took soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. 
This plague, just like the plague of gnats earlier on, comes without warning. This plague is the first real demonstration to the Egyptians that their lives now are in danger. No warning. And all of a sudden, everybody's breaking out in boils. Would you begin to think something's really wrong? Would you begin to think, uh-oh, it's getting closer to home. Now it's affecting us personally, physically. See, it's up to this point, it just been, had been frogs, insects, a plague on the livestock. Now the Egyptian people themselves are beginning to bear the brunt of God's judgment. Notice, please, the point of origin of this particular plague. Whereas the other plagues came from the water, the dust of the ground, and the air, right? Not so this plague. This plague comes from where? What's the source of this plague? The soot of a furnace. Why do you think that God would say, take soot from a furnace? Where was it that the, Egyptian, or that the Israelites were forced to bake their bricks? In a furnace, in ovens. You can see now, if you will, uh, poetic justice on God's part. Take some of that soot out of those furnaces where you were forced as slaves to bake bricks for the Egyptians. Take some of that soot and throw it in the air. Watch what I do with it. This is judgment. Now, on one hand, we're going to feel sorry for the Egyptians, but on the other hand, you have to understand what a cruel, cruel, godless culture they were. Idolatrous and cruel. Beyond your and I, my, I mean, you think what's going on in the Middle East and these terrorists cutting the heads off of people is barbaric. These Egyptians were even more barbaric. And if this stuff that's going on now is repulsive to you, if you understood the Egyptian culture, you understand God's judgment against them. Always attendant to idolatry is immorality and cruelty. cruelty. And it goes on and on and on. Festering boils break out on men and whatever animals had survived, presumably, from the previous plague on those animals. This had to be not just uncomfortable, this had to be an absolutely painful condition. And the boils themselves indicate further mockery on Egypt's gods. This is driven home by the condition of the magicians. That's why the magicians are mentioned, because they're the responsible ones between the, the gods and the work, the magic of the gods amongst the Egyptian people. We're told the, Egyptian, the, the magicians couldn't even stand before Moses. Obviously, probably because of the pain they were experiencing and the discomfort of the boils, but I think more uh, because, as a result of the demoralizing awareness that they were absolutely impotent to stand against these boils, to stand against this affliction. They couldn't even come before Moses. They couldn't even come before the Lord. There is no way. The effect of the plagues now are moving closer and closer to the power center. And where's the power center? Pharaoh. Getting closer and closer. God alone has control over the body. God alone has control over our health. Not the gods created by the imagination of men. Not the gods of sorcery and occult. I was driving home last night and drove past uh, down in Redondo, the, one of those places that uh, 
what is it, um, psychic, the psychic place on the highway down there, across from 31 flavors. My favorite restaurant. Even science and technology and doctors and nurses, as wonderful as a gift as they are to our culture and to us, they do not have control over our health and our body. We do our very best to maintain our health. We, well, some of us eat right, get exercise, proper rest and such. We try to maintain our health. We try to maintain the strength of our bodies. We do our very best But there's only one person. There's only one person who holds supreme control over our bodies and our health. That is the Lord himself. I went yesterday to visit a lady from our church who's battling with cancer throughout her body now. It's difficult. And uh, as we were talking and sharing and praying, she acknowledged fully that her life was in God's hands. Her health was in God's hands if it would be his will, she was ready to go home. Though her work, from her perspective, wasn't yet finished here. But she said, you know, I, I thank God for the doctors. I thank God for the chemotherapy. I thank God for the radiation. I thank God for the surgery. I thank God for all that. I thank him for this hospital and this hospital room and all that's attendant to this. But she said, there's only one person who can deliver me. God. God. The magicians had no power. The Egyptian gods and all their, all their magic and stuff had no power. This plague also marks another turning point. It's here for the very first time that Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go is attributed to the Lord himself. Verse 12 says... And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. All up to this point, now Pharaoh has been digging his heels in. Pharaoh has been resisting. Pharaoh, remember earlier on, said, Who is the Lord? I don't know him. Some mediocre God of Israelite slaves. He's nobody. And God said, You'll know who I am. I'll make make myself known to you. And so now, at this point, this is the first place where it says, Now God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this is not unexpected, by the way. Verse 12 ends with the phrase, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Back from chapter 4, verse 21, where the Lord revealed to Moses, far in advance of the onset of those plagues, his intention to make Pharaoh an instrument of his redemptive plan. Verse 16, it's revealed to Pharaoh. I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, you're in my hands. You're in my hands. You're an instrument that I've raised up. You're an instrument that I have brought into existence for this very purpose. Proverbs 16.4 puts it this way. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for for a day of disaster. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 quotes the Lord 
in this passage to Moses, Romans chapter 9, the context is the sovereignty of God. And God is unapologetic about his sovereign control over everything. And Paul acknowledges this because there's a problem. And people typically have, fallen people have a problem with the sovereignty of God. And so Paul defining it and helping his readers know and understand God's sovereign choice with respect to salvation and all that God does, writes this chapter. And in verse 17, he says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, therefore, God has mercy on whom he he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's a hard verse. That's a difficult verse. And so we go, ooh, does it really mean that? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It means just the opposite. No, it means that! (laughs) To assuage our sensibilities that may be offended by these hard things in our efforts to want to protect God's reputation, that he's not unfair anyway, though it seems like it in that verse, he hardens whom he chooses and he has mercy on whom he has mercy. It means exactly that. He's raised up Pharaoh for his purposes. For this event, for, to set the people, of his, his Israelite people, free. And that's why Paul follows on with verse 19 of this same passage. He says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? I mean, how could Pharaoh possibly resist his will? Therein lies the mystery. Therein lies the mystery. You cannot resolve the mystery between our choice, and God's sovereign will. You just can't resolve them. You've heard me talk about in the past. Paul's response to that question, who are you, old man, who talks back to God? We just bow before we say, Lord, I'm not going there because I can't go there because nothing I can say because I know that you are just, you are righteous, you are holy, you are good and merciful and compassionate in every way. Your character is without flaw. Your purposes are good, pleasing, and perfect. I know that. And so all that flies in the face of what I see here you're doing. You're hardening Pharaoh's heart. Is it that Pharaoh is weakening, maybe, and God says, nope, nope, I'm not going to let you weaken. I still have more work to do here. We're not given any insight. Who are you, O man, who talks back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He knows best. He knows best. And by faith we trust him. Though we do not understand it all, that's where faith comes in. You and I can only reason through and use our rational capacity. It'll take us only so far and so far. And at that point, it's a walk of faith. But there's a reasonable, rational basis for us to believe. Does that make sense? So all this now is a striking reminder of what God was teaching Moses and Israel. This is the whole point. They're going to need to know that God is absolutely sovereign and in 
control of every detail of their life and existence as he leads them out of Egypt. Isn't that comforting to know as he's led you out of the domain of darkness, as he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son? Isn't it good and comforting to know that he's in control of every single detail of your life? He's working everything for your good? God is in complete control. However Pharaoh may have reacted, given the chance, is not brought even into the discussion. He's not even given the chance. Yahweh simply hardens his heart. End of discussion. And that leads to the seventh plague. God has more work to do. Reveal more of his power over more of creation. And then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show, might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord... (laughs) hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the hail will fall all over Egypt on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. Only the place it did not hail, the only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. What a marvelous picture. Can you imagine the Israelites in the land of Goshen? Now here's the border between Goshen and the rest of Egypt. And they're all standing right there on the border watching the hail. (laughs) And it's sunshine over in Goshen. Is that cool? Would that be a neat picture? Don't get too close. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Hmm. Pray to the Lord for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. They would be left for the locusts. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. 
The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts, so Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. This plague acts as a climax, if you will. The climax of sorts for what has so far happened. Now Pharaoh would experience the full force of God's power. In verse 14, the Hebrew language literally says, I am about to send all my signs to your heart. God is really going to drive his point home into Pharaoh's life. Now the heavens themselves are to be unleashed against Egypt. The elements are obeying their creator, even to the point where God can specify the very target of the destruction stops at the land of Goshen. Aren't you glad that God's judgment stops before it reaches your doorstep? Would this be a frightening show of power? We've all seen lightning and thunder and and horrific storms, and you've seen the lightning come down to the ground and the sound of thunder, and it can really be frightening when it's powerful and loud and close to you. You don't want your house struck. You You don't want to be outside. You would think that this frightening show of power would have convinced Pharaoh. God's purpose throughout the plagues was to make Pharaoh know that he is the Lord. That was his purpose, that Pharaoh would know who is the Lord. After his earlier comment in the beginning, he says, Who is the Lord? I don't know him. What's unique to Moses' announcement is that Pharaoh's finally let in on a little secret here in verses 15 and 16. In essence, God says to him, understand this well, Pharaoh. You are serving my purpose. You are serving my purpose. At the end of verse 16, God's reputation would be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose in Exodus has worldwide implications that all the world would know that he is the Lord. And indeed, after the After the exodus, this is what what happens. All the surrounding nations have heard. They know. They know the God of the Israelites, and they fear him. There is more going on here than simply liberating a band of oppressed slaves from Egypt. Much more going on. And Pharaoh is, unfortunately for him, involved in something far bigger than he understands or is planned for. Pharaoh is in way over his head, and he is clueless. Again, God, this, is, this, this, this plague of hail is judgment on the gods of Egypt. It demonstrates that God is in control of the air and the sky and the weather itself, not the Egyptian gods. The god Seth was the god of wind and storms. There was another god, Nut, N-U-T, I thought that kind of humorous when I read that. Nut. Nut was the goddess of the sky, and she was responsible for bringing the blessings of the sun to the crops. But not only that, there was the god Isis, the god of rain and water, the god Cirrus, who was the god of fire and lightning, the god Shu, S-H-U, who was the god of the atmosphere. None of these Egyptian gods 
could provide protection against the hail. The Lord alone controls the forces of nature. What an object lesson. You can imagine how the the anguish and desperation of thousands upon thousands of Egyptians are praying to their gods. They're appealing to their gods to have mercy and those prayers are not even heard, let alone answered. Vain. Praying in vain. For the first time, Pharaoh now is offered some chance of protection. Send the crops, send your servants under cover before the hail hits. Certainly, if he won't send the Israelites out to safety, at least he'll send his own livestock to safety. Is this an expression of God's mercy? I don't think so. I rather think it's a test for Pharaoh. A test. Will Pharaoh take steps to comply with this warning from God? And if he does, he's acknowledging God's absolute authority and sovereignty. Now, we don't know if Pharaoh does heed Moses' warning, but verse 20 tells us that only those who feared the word of the Lord responded to that warning. Only those who feared the word of the Lord Love when you and I open this book and we read it, we go, ooh, man, this is the word of God. You fear the word of the Lord. Heed the warning. Has God warned man of coming judgment? Absolutely. He's been warning man for generations of coming judgment, hasn't he? Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. It's being talked about. It's being preached about. It's been talked about since the very beginning. It's being revealed. And it's being revealed against godlessness and wickedness and those who suppress the truth of God through their wickedness. God has warned mankind of coming judgment. And just like here, for the Egyptians, just, just like that, he has provided a shelter from coming judgment, has he not? That shelter is who? Jesus Christ. He is our shelter in time of storm. He is our shelter in time of storm. Psalm 91, cover me with your feathers. Cover me with your feathers. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Luke writes this marvelous statement. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name, no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. What name is that? We believe it's the name of Jesus Christ. We believe it's that name. You Christians are so narrow. Yes, yes we are, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not through Buddha, not through Krishna, not through Mary Baker Eddy, not through Joseph Smith, not through L. Ron Hubbard, not through uh, any of the other modern gurus and all the people who profess to have the, the way to enlightenment. No, there's only one way. Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul underscores that in Romans. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, when he says this, I love this verse. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Now notice this. While we were still, what? Sinners. When I was at my very worst, when I didn't even care about him, 
when I had no interest in him, when I was oblivious, when I was out doing my thing, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Since we have now been justified by his blood, and that word justified is in the perfect tense in the Greek language, meaning it's a done deal, it's finished, perfect. We have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? He is our shelter. Jesus. Somebody say hallelujah. Now when the plague arrives here, the hail hurts not only humans and animals, but everything growing in the fields. Strips everything. All the vegetation is struck. Again, this is devastating to the land and the economy of Egypt. And also, I think it poetic justice, again, just like the soot from the furnace, maybe a veiled reprisal for the Israelites having to gather their own straw for making bricks back in chapter 5. Okay, you made my people gather their own straw. I'm going to wipe out all your vegetation. Whoa. Don't mess with God. And verse 27, this is here. This is, this is an interesting statement. Verse 27. It brings us to the point that you could expect. You think maybe now, now Pharaoh would be brought to his knees. What appears as a truly heartfelt capitulation by him. Notice verse 27. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and my people and I are in the wrong. Is this true repentance, do you think? Sounds like it, doesn't it? You ever had some people come to you, plead, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you want to believe them in the worst way, right? It seems that Pharaoh understands the core problem here. The core problem, what is that? God's right, I'm wrong. God's right, I'm wrong. Can't justify myself anymore. But he's really saying this, I'm sorry because I'm wrong? Or I'm sorry because there's hail. Call off the hail. Example. Classic example. You're in a hurry, you run a red light. What's the first thing you do as you run that red light? You look in your rearview mirror. You instantly know you're guilty. You're looking for the police. You just know. And sure enough, a policeman shows up, the red light, whoo, 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 pulls you over. And you tell a police officer who comes up to your door, you say, officer, I'm so sorry. Are you sorry because you broke the law? Or are you sorry because you're going to get a ticket? <laughs> Our kids are brothers and sisters. Tell your sister you're sorry. I'm sorry. Mean it. I mean it. <laughs> right. You're only saying you're sorry because you know you're in big time trouble. You're not really sorry because you're really sorry because you offended them. 
Imagine this, the little brother and sister, they've just been fighting, and the parent comes in, and the brother says to his sister, I am truly sorry. I've harmed you. I've violated the trust of our relationship. You're my sister. I should take care of you. I should love you, and I haven't loved you. Please forgive me. I am truly wrong. When was the last time that happened? Ha! Pharaoh's apparent repentance does not last. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow, what does that mean? It's a sorrow that God feels over sin. That we look at it and we say, oh no. We see how destructive it is. And we're truly, truly sorry for our sin. It's only godly sorrow that has the power to drive us to repentance that would lead to salvation. But his repentance is not godly. No sooner than the plague ceases, Pharaoh sins again, we're told, by hardening his heart. And his officials, too. Moses, up in verse 30, recognized that he's insincere. In effect, calls Pharaoh a liar. And Moses now simply anticipates that what has, just what has become now a, a pattern for Pharaoh, predictable cycle of behavior, say one thing, do another. Say one thing, do another. This is his M.O. That would open the door for the eighth plague, the locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. I've hardened his heart so I can continue to do these things. That you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. Not only the Egyptians, but that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little is left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled this land until now. And then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long? How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? And then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will be going with you? Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go, along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. And then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. 
The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so that the locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and on the fruit and the fruit of the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God and take away this deadly plague from me. This deadly plague. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord changed the wind, so a strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let the Israelites go. This plague begins by telling us, in effect, there is no chance that Pharaoh will change his heart. Why is there no chance that Pharaoh will change his heart? Because God has hardened his heart. Pharaoh is clearly in God's hands to be used for God's purposes. And he is absolutely helpless to do anything about it. The locusts, as did the hail, bring widespread devastation on people, on the animals, and on all the crops. The plague of locusts point to what is yet still to come. First, the east wind brings them, we're told. And in chapter 14, verse 21, we'll also see it's the east wind that will part the Red Sea. Secondly, the locusts meet their end. They meet their demise in the Red Sea. And also in chapter 14, verse 28, so does the Egyptian army. Even the language in chapter 10, verse 19, in chapter 14, verse 28, even the language, both, both of those verses include similar Similar terms. In chapter 10 it says, Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. And speaking about the Egyptian army, not one of them survived. Great similarities. And thirdly, this dead, deadly plague, verse 17, for which Pharaoh asks relief, foreshadows the tenth plague. The plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. It's pointing to, the, pointing to what's still yet to come. And lastly, the blackness caused by the locusts, verse 15, anticipates the next plague, the plague of darkness. The locust plague also brings to light another purpose of the plagues in verse 2, that future generations may know the Lord. Future generations may know the Lord. God's actions are not, to be, are not meant to be kept secret. They must be told and retold and retold and remembered by future generations. This is a responsibility of every parent to teach our children. We have a testimony. God has been faithful. This is what I was. This is what I am now. I was blind, but now I see. We talk about God in our rising up, in our, in our lying down, in our going out and our coming in. We tell our children. We educate them. We inculcate them with an understanding of the truth of God and how he's worked in our lives 
Because at some point, they are going to need to make a confession of faith themselves. And they are going to face worse times than you and I have ever seen. As this culture continues to coarsen and the threats against these, up, these next generations become more and more desperate. We need to teach our children about the Lord. We need to teach our children about the Lord. This is a parent's responsibility that the future generations may know that they can lean on Him. When kids run into problems, when they run into difficulties, they need to know that they can go to God and God will protect them. It's not enough that they get it in the children's church. They must get it from the parents. Beloved, our testimony has to be real. Verse 1 again tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He stands in sorry contrast to the desire on the part of his court officials to let the Israelites go in verse 7. Pharaoh is the last to catch on. His magicians abandoned him long ago in chapter 8. And now his court officials ask him in verse 7, How long? How long are we going to have to go through this? And Pharaoh is apparently convinced at this point. Convinced to let the Israelites go. He says, now who's going to be going? He knows. He knows that they are essential to the economy of Egypt. They are the labor force. And he is suspicious that they go and they take all the families and all the flocks. They ain't coming back. So just exactly who's going? Moses tells him, we're all going. He says, no, no, just the men go. Uh, Now, Pharaoh had a basis to say that because it was the men, typically, who who, um, functioned in the the, uh, religious obligations. Just the men should go. But clearly, God's purpose all along was to get the Israelites out of Egypt, never to return. So again, Pharaoh's bargaining with Moses. If he can get him to compromise and keep the families there, then the men are going to have to come back. It's a ploy to keep them under his thumb, to keep them under his control. The plague of locusts, in a sense, brings Pharaoh to his knees. He calls Pharaoh, or he calls Moses and Aaron, confesses once again that he has sinned. He asks for another chance. So Moses prays for the plague to be removed. This is not for Pharaoh to repent. This is, again, simply another opportunity for Pharaoh to see God's power in removing the plague. It's just, again, a display of God's might. When the locusts are gone, God hardens Pharaoh's heart in verse 20. That will open the door for the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. This is an amazing plague. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the skies so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Darkness that can be... It's so dark that it's palpable. You can reach out and you can touch it. So dark. You can't see anything in front of you. I don't know that I've ever been in darkness like that. Or that I want to, that's right. It speaks of the darkness of eternal lostness. Darkness. Darkness. 
And so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Hmm. And then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. Until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship him. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. This ninth plague is the next to the last blow before the final punishments in that tenth plague and the Red Sea episode. This plague also comes without warning. It comes without delay. The plague is a judgment on the sun god Ra, the most revered, powerful of all of the gods of Egypt. You have to see the humor in this. For the god of the Israelite slaves to have his way with such a powerful Egyptian god would send a clear, clear message. This would speak even more directly to Pharaoh since the Egyptians believed that the pharaohs were the direct descendants of the sun god, Ra. Once again, Pharaoh seems to capitulate. But with the stipulation, they can go, but the animals must stay behind. No doubt, again, a ploy to ensure the return of the Israelites. But Moses said, no, the animals are needed for the sacrifices. And at this point, Pharaoh is cut off. He's absolutely cut off. Verse 27, we're told God hardened his heart. No sooner has Moses said, nope, we need the animals, God hardens his heart. Right there at that point. How he may have responded if left to his own is not the point. Nor should we become preoccupied with reconciling decisive action on God's part with our own images of how fair we think God should be. At that point, we go, whoa. Don't mess with him. God is bringing this contest between himself and Egypt's king to a speedy resolution. At this point, Moses and Pharaoh part company for what appears to be the last time. They will meet one more time. Chapter 12, verse 31 after the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh here, ironically, cuts off the only means of salvation he has by banishing Moses from his presence forever. You and I have experienced that. We've had people say, get away from me, leave me alone, don't ever talk to me about your God, get out of my face. We're the only connection they have between God and their salvation. And they, like Pharaoh, would banish us from their life. How tragic. But of course, this too is according to God's plan. By having Pharaoh cast Moses out of his presence, God is in effect casting Pharaoh out of his presence. 
If the end were ever in doubt, it is no longer so. Later, Pharaoh's pronouncement to Moses will indeed come back to haunt him. He and Moses will meet again, and they'll meet at the Red Sea. But it will not be Moses who dies. It will be Egypt. Egypt. It's amazing to think how much effect one decision can have over so many people. All of Egypt would pass off the scene as a world power from that point on. People do some stupid things, don't they? People do unreasonable things. People do very unreasonable, illogical, and rational. Things that seem absolutely insane. But nothing is any more insane when you think about it than a hard heart. Nothing is any more insane than rejection of God, denial of God. Nothing is any more insane than rejection of God's message. When God's calling, when he's knocking on the, the, the door of a person's heart, for that person to harden their heart and say no, and give in to their pride and their arrogance, there is nothing more insane. The writer to the Hebrews says this, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It's a warning. It's a warning that none of us succumbs to unbelief because of the circumstances of our life seem to, to argue against the existence of a good and merciful and compassionate God. That's why we need to be together. That's why we need to support and encourage one another. That's why we need to be in fellowship, because there are people who are going to be going through dips. They need people to come along and say, God is faithful, let me pray with you, let me hold you up, let me encourage you through the season of weakness so that you don't succumb. And you're not deceived by sin. It's imperative, beloved, that we trust in a sovereign God. That we don't understand all that's going on, and, but that we're confident that He is faithful and that all of His purposes are good and pleasing and perfect. You can take that to the bank. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank You. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that we have a great confidence. Thank you for the refuge from the coming judgment that you have provided in Jesus. Thank you there's no confusion on our part anymore. We don't go here and there and the other place, and, but it's very clear. You've made it clear to us. You've brought us from darkness to light. You've brought us from blindness that we can see now. God, thank you for the salvation that you have purchased by your own blood. When we were at our very worst, when we were sinners, Lord, you set your plan, your heart upon us, even before the foundation of the world. God, that knowledge is too high for us. It's too great. All we can do is worship you, praise you, and thank you. You are an awesome God. 
You are mighty in all your ways. We trust you today. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand and worship him, this mighty and awesome God? Praise his name.